You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. It's wonderful to see you all and be together uh, here in the room. And also those of you who are watching online, uh, it's a joy to have you with us as well. Today we wrap up a series that we've done all summer called Encounter. And uh, it has been about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Next week we start a series on prayer. We're going to teach through the Lord's Prayer. And uh, the series is going to be called Praying for Change. Uh, For some of us it may be praying for a change. But anyway, praying for It was a little joke, wasn't very funny. But anyway, praying for change. Today we're going to finish the series on the Spirit by talking about the Spirit unites us. We're going to be out of Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, the Spirit unites us. And last week we talked about one body with diverse gifts. Today we're going to talk about one body with diverse people. So for the scripture reading this morning, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, each of the verses will be read by a member of our congregation uh, who will will read from their uh, native language. So on the screen will be uh, the foreign language being spoken and the English uh, below it. And then we'll close out uh, with the entire passage being read in English. So let's listen uh, to God's holy word. Hay un solo cuerpo y un solo espíritu, así como también fueron llamados a una sola esperanza. En Hodi Father, Fan Amo. Wat oor amal en by amal en in ons amal is. Equal to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Can we thank the Lord for that expression? Of- And we're just so richly blessed because we could have gone on with more than six verses with multiple additional languages represented in our congregation. The Spirit unites diverse people into one body. This summer, I have addressed the theme of racial unity, racial injustice, uh, a few times Uh, I've preached a sermon on the theme. Uh, We've offered a couple of pastoral prayers in our service along the lines of that theme. I followed that by teaching a class on biblical justice this summer. It wasn't a class 
uh, entirely on racial justice. Matter of fact, that was kind of a smaller section in the class, but it was on the theme of biblical justice. As well, I've spent the entire summer um, in a weekly meeting. Each week this summer, I've met with a diverse group, the same group each week, of people representing various races within our church. And we've used these phone calls to, or Zoom calls rather, to uh, look at the Scripture and to apply the Scripture to our lives, to talk about race and racism and differences, and to seek to grow together responding to the biblical call for racial reconciliation. So with all of that as a backdrop, I've been asked by a number of people in our congregation, so like, where is our church headed? What's, what's going on? Is there like an agenda here? What, 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 what is going on? Where are we headed? What, what kind of emphasis does this represent? Some have asked that question out of caution, a caution that maybe there would be something that would eclipse the message of Scripture or the, or the gospel as our central focus. So they've asked the question, where is the church heading based on the things they've picked up? Where is the church heading? They've asked it with caution and concern. I've also been asked by other people, where is the church headed? Because they're enthusiastic about the theme they've picked up that we've tapped into a bit over this summer. And they've been like, what's next? This is great. There are issues to be addressed and dealt with that we must apply the gospel to all of us as one people. So what's next? Let's keep going. I've been asked by some people with caution and concern. I've been asked by other people, where's the church going? With enthusiasm and concern that we would move too slowly. The question's a fair one. Where's the church headed? So I thought I would just answer that uh, because it is a good question. Where is our church headed? And I'm going to read it to you because I want to read you my answer because I didn't want to just like go off the cuff on this one. So I'm going to read you my answer. Where is the church going? Where is Grace Church going? The answer is found in Revelation 7. After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne." And two, the Lamb. A great number from every nation, tribe, people, and language. That's where we're headed as a church. That's where you're headed as a Christian. There's no other destination. There aren't options. You will all be delivered to that moment and that day in eternity. And it is easy for any of us who are Christians that believe the Bible, it's easy to get excited about that day. Worship before the throne of God, seeing Jesus face to face, gathered with a diverse people, with one voice and one heart and one praise. Salvation belongs 
to our God. It's easy to get excited about that day, but I believe that God wants heaven to touch earth, that there's to be a foretaste of that day today. And there's a lot of work to do between today and that day. The verse I used to, I just read, used to be used always as a missions verse, and it should be. Go to the nations with the gospel. But the nations have come to our country. The nations are in the DFW. The nations are in Frisco. The nations are in this church. We don't have to wait for that day to experience unity and diversity. That starts today. That day will be pure, it will be clean, it will be perfect, and it will be glorious unity in diversity. Today, however, for anyone willing to really lean in, anyone willing to really have an honest conversation with a brother or sister who's different, well, today, for those who will lean in, it's messy, and it's tense, and at times, it's discouraging. But the reality is, it is still glorious unity in diversity, and it is a destination. This is a vision. This is a destination. It is a destination and a vision that is so glorious that even the attempt today to taste what the Lord has for us on that day, even the attempt, as difficult as it is, is absolutely worthy and sweet as an attempt. Now, as great as that day will be, here's the deal. Today, we have one advantage that we won't have on that day. Today, there is one great advantage that we won't have in that day, and that is that our unity in diversity is to be a witness of the power of the gospel to a polarized, racially divided culture that we live in today. There will be no evangelism in that day, but today we have an opportunity to either give credibility and authenticity to the message of the gospel or to erode the message of the gospel by an example of people who look just like the world. There's a new book out that I would recommend to you. It just came out last week, uh, two weeks ago maybe. Uh, It is called Beautiful Community, The Beautiful Community, Unity, Diversity, and Church, and the church at its best. The whole book is written on unity and diversity in the church. It is written by Erwin Entz, uh, who was in 2018 elected the moderator, essentially the president, of the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, an historic white southern denomination, and he was the first black pastor to ever be elected their president. And he, he wrote the following in this book. He's talking about John 17, and he talks about Jesus' prayer that we would be one so that everyone would know that the Father sent Jesus. Uh, he writes, Jesus says that our unity is the evidence to the world that he is real. In other words, the church's most powerful witness to the world that Jesus is real isn't signs and wonders like miraculous healings. No, it's the supernatural life of God's people united in beautiful, diverse community. 
To refuse to pursue unity and diversity as a redeemed people is to fundamentally neglect what it means for us to be the image of God. The world should look at the church in amazement and wonder, how did this happen? How did people with such differences come together and commit to staying together in spite of the difficulty? How do we cultivate ethnic or racial unity? I'm going to use those words interchangeably. They're not necessarily interchangeable, but the word our culture uses is race. And so I'm going to use the word racial unity and ethnic uh, unity uh, interchangeably. I, I think, first of all, I would say this is a marathon issue. It is not a sprint. To be a witness to the power of the gospel, diversity and unity, uh, it is a marathon. But it starts here, and this is really all I want to talk about today is a vision. I'm not going to give you a ton of how-tos. It's a vision that, that, that is God desires unity and diversity. It starts with a biblical conviction that this theme matters to God, that this theme is prominent in the Scripture and that this theme reflects the power of the gospel. That this is not the gospel. Racial unity is in the church is not the gospel, but it is an entailment of the gospel. It is a fruit of the gospel. It is an evidence that people have experienced the gospel. And that theme comes through clearly in the book of Ephesians, and that's why we're looking at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 today. Let me give you a little context in the book, because this is eye-opening. In chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, all God talks about is what he's done for us. There is not a command in the first three chapters. There are no commands. It's all what God has done. Chapter 1 talks about the fact that God has chosen us before time, elected us, adopted us, sent his son, Jesus, to die for us. Chapter 2 makes clear that this is all the work of grace, that it is a gift, and that he has graciously saved us and brought us into a new society called the church made up of Jew and Gentile. People that were alienated and hated one another, now one in Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 emphasizes that he's brought Jew and Gentile together in Christ, and then in fact, that's the whole mystery of the gospel. He says the mystery of the gospel is that the two have become one new man in Jesus Christ. And beginning in chapter 4, after telling us all that he has done, he begins to tell us how we should live in light of what he's done. So chapters 4 through 6 are filled with commands, and we see it starts with our section verse 1. This is where sort of the command segment starts. I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The first thing he says is based on all that God has done, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, the word worthy here doesn't mean deserving because he's already explained in chapter 2 it's all a gift, salvation is, but it simply means appropriate or fitting. He's saying your lives should be fitting to the message of the gospel. Your lives should be appropriate to those who've been reconciled to God and reconciled to his people. So because of what God has done for you and for what what God has done in bringing disparate, actually not disparate, hostile people together, in light of the fact he has done that, your life should be an appropriate representation of what he has done. So how do we live appropriately? How do we live worthily, so to speak? How do we live fitting to the gospel? We'll look at verse 3. He tells us, Eager, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit, 
That's our series. The Spirit unifies us, and he says we are to, ma- we are to, you know, we are to, we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The NIV says we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, notice the command here. It's not get unified. It's, it, it's not pursue unity. It's rather maintain or make every effort to keep what God has already provided in Christ. He's already provided unity. We're already one. We're declared one in Christ, and on that day we will see it, Revelation 7. So he's saying, live out what's already true of the church. You don't have to make, create something out of nothing. No, you have, to, you have to maintain, which is hard work, by the way. You have to maintain what Jesus has already done by making us one, by taking people that were hostile to one another, Jew and Gentile, making us one church, people that were hostile to one another religiously and ethnically as well, Jew and Gentile. Now, I want you to get something that here that this is really important. Maybe you've never thought of this before. But Gen- Ephesians is three chapters of what God has done. Now he's going to start based on all God has done through election, through grace, through the death and resurrection of Christ, through making us all one church. By doing that, what's his first command? Well, the first command is live appropriately. And what's the second command? What does it mean to live appropriately? What does he say? After all this grace, what should you do? Evangelize? No. Pray? Read the Bible? Give to the poor? Work hard at your job? Avoid sexual immorality? He doesn't start in any of those places. Have a good marriage? He doesn't start in any of those places. He says, based on all God has done, what you should do is, number one, maintain the unity that Jesus bled and died for. That's the number one command, the first command in the book. And I dare say none of us would start there. If we said, based on the grace of God, how should you live, we wouldn't start there because we have bought into a Western, individualized view of the Christian life, whereas the Bible doesn't view the Christian life as individual. Yes, he saves individuals, but he puts us into a unified family. The Bible is all about God winning and saving a people for himself, a people a people. He is all about unifying a people that will reflect his glory in the world in a way that an individual never can. An individual can never fully display the image of God in a way that a family of diverse individuals can. He starts with unity, and he says, maintain the the unity of the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit's done this. What does he say next, verse 3? Maintain the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort to maintain the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why is he talking about peace? So that we have a sense, like an existential sense of peace? Is this talking about I feel tranquil inside? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you people were at odds, hating and being hated, and I made peace. When he says peace here, he didn't just pick that word. It's the context of the letter. Look back at chapter 2. This is what he's talking about. Chapter 2, Jew and Gentile, verse 14. For he himself, for Jesus, for Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. When Jesus is dying, when he is being killed, he's doing it to kill hostility, one group against another, so that we'd be one in Christ. That's the peace. He is the peace. He broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, which were not two groups of people. Gentiles are all non-Jews. So there are many ethnicities. Every non-Jew is a Gentile. Many ethnicities are Jewish, and and, uh, Ephesus was a multi-ethnic church. So there's multiple ethnicities within the church, and he's saying you've all been made one. The call to maintain unity, including, there's other topics of unity, but including ethnic unity is a timely word for us today. I've been asked as I've talked about this, hey, are are we just like chasing the culture? Are we just like jumping on the bandwagon, like the culture's talking about racial justice, or are we just like trying to jump on the bandwagon of what is cool or popular in the culture? Well, I, I can say I'm not trying to be trendy here at all. I'm trying to understand God's purposes for the church, but I will say this. Sometimes issues arise in the culture, broadly in the culture, which God has addressed in Scripture. And it's an opportunity for the church to bring the answer that the world does not have. I don't care who you vote for in this election. That individual, whoever's elected, will not change anybody's heart internally on the subject of racism. I don't care what laws Congress passes, and we should be for just laws that treat people with equity. That does honor the Lord. So we should be for just laws. But could I say this? No law can change a person's heart to love someone who views the world different than they, who who sees, who experiences the world different than they, who votes different than they, whose, whose take on the culture is different than theirs. No law can make that happen. That's the Spirit of God that says there is a unity deeper than anything else, and it is not my race, it is not my gender, it is not my political party, it's my unity and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The culture can't do this. So so what I'm talking about this is we've got the answer, and we haven't historically, particularly, let me speak as a white pastor, particularly the, uh, the majority population white churches don't have a great track record over the last few hundred years in this area. But God is raising hearts and vision of what he desires and what could be, a vision of what could be were the Holy Spirit to grip our hearts what could be. So I'm not trying to be trendy. I'm I'm rather saying God addresses something that everybody is talking about in the culture. And the culture shouldn't be overflowing into the church with with a heart of, uh, you know, polarizing offense and hatred and suspicion. The church should be overflowing into the culture with a model of what it looks like when people meet Jesus Christ. Because that is the answer. Another book I want to recommend to you today is written by John Perkins. This came out. This is not just hot off the press. John Perkins has written a book called One 
if I can find my information here, I've written a book called One Blood. And uh, John, uh, John Perkins is a, a leader uh, in the church on the topic of uh, civil rights and such. He has been involved for a long time. He's like 89. And he wrote this book at 87, so it's two years old. And he calls it Parting Words to the Church on Race and Love. And uh, he's a man who's been, uh, was involved in the civil rights movement, was severely beaten. His brother was uh, killed by uh, white law enforcement in the South way back, way back, decades ago. And uh, he is a man just with a heart of love, if you've ever heard him speak. And this is what he says. In his book, he talks about two churches, a white church and a black church, that worked together in a unity and a union that was, that was unparalleled and was written up in the secular press because it was so, uh, so unusual. This is what he says. I've been preaching and teaching on justice and reconciliation for nearly six decades. Okay, this guy's been in this conversation preaching and, 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 uh, for 60 years. I've written more than 12 books and spoken to audiences both massive and small. I've experienced firsthand the viciousness of racial hate, but I've also seen, also seen the power of God's reconciling love in action. I'm convinced that more than any speech I've given or book I've written, it's going to take congregations, like he wrote about these two congregations, black and white, Shiloh Baptist and Ridgewood in Jacksonville, to make the message real. It's going to take intentionally multi-ethnic and multicultural churches to bust through the chaos and confusion of the present moment and redirect our gaze to the revolutionary gospel of reconciliation. I really believe that each of our souls yearns for this vision. We want it. We know in our heart of hearts that it's right. I believe that there's a vision-shaped vacuum in our soul of the church, and we will not be satisfied by man-made strategies or philosophies, but only his vision of the church victoriously fulfilling the divine mandate. I'm asking God to help us be captured by this awesome vision. One church that crosses all ethnic, cultural, class lines. I pray that he opens our eyes to see that we truly are one blood, for there is only one race, the human race, he writes. His point is, man, I've been at this for 60 years with my voice, but it's not a voice, it's a people that will get the attention of the culture. So how do we do that? We need God's vision. That's what I'm talking about today. We need God's vision, but how do we live out God's vision? Well, he tells us in this passage. Now, obviously, the unity he has in mind is broader than just the Jew-Gentile union that was brought about by Christ. It's broader than that, but I want to take the context and emphasize that one. First of all, we must walk humbly. He says this in verse 2, you know, live out the calling to which you've been called with all humility, with all humility. The word humility here means uh, lowliness of mind. That's what the word means in in verse 2, humility, lowliness of mind. And the point is that the more you understand chapters 1 through 3, all that God has done for us in Christ, including before time choosing us, once we get a vision for what all God has done for us, he becomes greater in our eyes and we become much smaller in our eyes. Humility is about being right-sized by God. And it's being right-sized in relationship to others. Humility enables unity. 
Humility, again, right-sizes us. Humility places less confidence in me. Humility places less confidence in my opinions and my preferences. Humility makes me slow to judge others or to react to others. Humility doesn't insist that I know what others are thinking, and I know why they said that or did that or posted that. Humility takes a step back on evaluating the, the, the motives of other people, other Christians in particular. Sinful pride, on the other hand, destroys the unity for which Jesus died. John Piper has written a book on the cross and race. It's called Bloodlines. And in that book, he says, racial tensions are rife with pride. The pride of white supremacy. The pride of black power. The pride of loud verbal attack. And the pride of despising silence. The pride that feels secure. And the pride that masks fear. Listen, he says, where pride holds sway, there's no hope for the kind of listening and patience and understanding and openness to correction that relationships require. Where pride holds sway, there's no hope, he says. Humility, on the other hand, means listening, patience, understanding, responsiveness to correction. One of the things that God has been teaching me in the recent months and weeks as I've been reading broadly and discussing, I almost say nonstop with folks in our church, this topic, at least regularly discussing this topic. The more I talk and think and relate with friends about race relationships, race relations, uh, the more I come to this conclusion that I need to walk humbly because people have perspectives and experiences and reactions to situations that I just don't have, that I don't see, that I don't anticipate. I just live in my world with my experience, which is limited. And if I don't have people that I can hear from their perspective and their experience, I just live in this sort of echo chamber of me, my social media feed, my news, my experience, my opinions and preferences. Let me give you two examples of this summer experiences I've had where I learned something. Now, I need you to listen to both of these examples. And I need you to hold on to both of these examples and not pick one that you like better. Okay? I need you to hear both of these, and this is what the Lord, I'm not saying I was humble in these situations. I'm saying that the Lord is calling me to humility. The first illustration I want to tell you is about Mother's Day. This Mother's Day, we do what we always do at Mother's Day. We honor moms, we thank God for moms, and we do something else. We seek to care and bear the burdens and weep with those who weep, because many, for many people, Mother's Day is a very hard day. And so I made comments like we typically do on Mother's Day. This Mother's Day, I said, hey, I, you know, we honored moms. And I said, listen, we know it's a hard day, and we want to bear the burdens for struggling moms today. We want you to know if you're a hurting mom, we, we know that, and we see that. And so I said things like, there's women in the church that want to be a mom and aren't a mom. There's people in the church, your mom died within the last year. There's people in the church, you have a bad relationship with your mom. 
There's people in the church, you're a mom and you have bad relationship with your kids. And today is an excruciatingly burdensome day. Following Mother's Day, I had a conversation with multiple, not one, not two, multiple black moms in our church. You see, that Mother's Day was on the heels of the shooting, uh, the killing of Ahmad Arbery. The young man who was running through a neighborhood and was killed by some people that essentially took what appears from the video to be sort of vigilante justice upon him. And the video, which had only been out a few days, this is my word and not theirs, had the appearance of a modern day lynching, someone killing someone because they took justice into their own hands. My, my word. Multiple black moms I talked to and said, That Sunday, just so you know, they said it graciously, humbly, tears in their eyes, not accusingly. I was hoping that Sunday to know that someone knew what we felt as black moms that day. Because every time that happens, I as a black mom with black children think about my son who runs. I think about my children. I think about the world, not just his death, grievous, but I think about the history and the culture. And what that means for my kids, and it, it's grieving, and it's, it's fearful. And, you know, that Sunday, Pastor, that Sunday, I was just hoping that someone would say, we see. We see you. We know. We understand. Because all, many, many black churches, that's what they would have addressed that Sunday morning. I had no idea. Did not occur to me. I was grieved by the video. Had no idea that on Mother's Day there would be weeping moms hoping to hear a word of comfort, to just be recognized in that list of all the people that are hurting today. It was eye-opening and so helpful to me. Let's fast forward to George Floyd's death. After George Floyd's death, I preached a sermon on racism based on we're all created in the image of God. In that sermon, I very strongly exhorted white people. I exhorted the majority population of white people, and I said strongly, this is not a time to talk. This is a time to listen and, and, and grieve with black brothers and sisters and grieve as humans. And this is, don't even, it's going to rise up. Yeah, 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 I know it's bad that he died, but, and I just strongly said, don't react, don't speak. This is a time for you to listen. And I had multiple, not one or two, multiple white people get with me after the sermon and say, because of I was so strong, I thought I was speaking about a moment in time, but it wasn't heard that way. And I had multiple people say to me, I feel like you invalidated any perspective I could have. I feel like you silenced me. I feel like one person said this, very perceptive. I feel like you preached a whole sermon on we're all created in the image of God and then said there's some image bearers that have nothing to contribute, nothing to say in any kind of reconciling conversation. You're just bad. Shut up and sit down. That's how it sounded to multiple people. I feel like you invalidated my perspective. So I said, whoa. Of course, any speaking of reconciliation, unity, growth, friendship, understanding, listening, of course, it's not one party speaks and another listens. It's, there's an opportunity for both to share their hearts. Of course, I believe that. Of course, that's in the Bible. 
but I sounded to them more like the culture that day, perhaps, than the word of God. Both of those situations, I did not walk into those. Who knows what's going to come out of today? I don't know. But I, I didn't walk into either of those situations attempting to, to that, that some, knowing that someone would hear that or not hear what they exp- hoped I would say. So it was very instructive. The point is, I'm learning the more and more I think about this, the more important it is to build relationships, to keep an open heart, and to keep an open mind to my brothers and sisters. Because the reason I had those conversations is because I had a relationship with people. There was at least some trust there where they could say, could I raise my hand and communicate a concern to you? We have to be in a season where we are willing to humble ourselves and to hear where we need to grow. Walk humbly. Number two, walk gently with all gentleness, he says. The word translated gentleness can be translated meekness as well. Gentleness uh, and meekness do not mean wimpiness. They mean self-control in the service of God and the service of others. That's what it means. It means a spirit of self-control. Humility and gentleness go together. Think of Jesus. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Gentle doesn't mean spineless. Gentle does not mean silence towards injustice. Case in point, Jesus and the money changers who were not treating people equitably in the court of Gentiles in the temple. So Jesus is gentle, but there are times where he expresses a righteous anger towards injustice. That is appropriate. Gentleness is a disposition of our heart toward others flowing from grace. I'm going to recommend one more book. I have a whole thing out of this. I'm just going to say go read the book because of time in my sermon. I just looked at the clock. There's a new book out called A Gentle Answer. This is written by Scott Sauls, and the, the subtitle is Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. He talks about how gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit, the power of Jesus through his people is to make a difference. Let me just give you a few of the chapter titles so that you, it'll whet your appetite to get the book. He's, he says, when gentleness is, controls us, these are his chapter titles, some of them. We grow thicker skin. We do anger well. We forgive all the way. Those are three chapters. Another one, we bless our betrayers. Another one, we receive criticism graciously. I don't think we're doing, as a church nationally, I don't think we're doing any of those very well right now. We need, we need a revolution in biblical gentleness. Walk gently. Number three, walk patiently. Walk patiently, he says, uh, I lost it. Bearing with one another in love. Patience. Walk with patience, bearing with one another in love. How foreign is that in our world? Patient. Bearing with one another in love. love. The word patient here is described by the phrase bearing with one another in love. Patience is required when you have to bear with someone. Listen, some of you have looked on Facebook and you've seen, there's a lot of controversial topics right now. I haven't been talking about race, but we could go coronavirus. We could go a lot of places. We go politics. So there's a lot of controversy right now in a polarized society. And some of you have looked on Facebook and seen what a member of the church that you're a member of posted. 
and you have thought, I can't believe a member of our church thinks that. I mean, can I be in the same church with someone that thinks that? Did you see what they post? Does God know about this? (laughs) Yeah, God knows about it, and that's why the third commandment in all of Ephesians is to walk patiently, bearing with one another in love. Oh, God was not taken by surprise at all. Matter of fact, he ordained that you would see that very post in that very moment to expose your heart, Ephesians 4, and say, is my heart maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, or is my heart, how could they ever, how could I, how could I ever be in a church with them? Someone has said the worst four-letter word in the church is them. At Grace Church, it's us. There are no them in Grace Church. It is us, all united in Jesus Christ, unified by his blood, called to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And if you're going to be in community with other Christians, you will have to exercise patience and bear with one another. If you are going to talk about issues of race with a fellow Christian of a different ethnicity, then you will have to learn the pathway of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Forbearance. the, The patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's what we are called to. It's what we need. Let me leave you with this on forbearance. I hope this sticks with you. It's convicting to me. John Stott, in his commentary on Ephesians 4, this is how he speaks of this word patience. He says, patience is, quote, long-suffering toward aggravating people, such as God in Christ has shown towards us. Forbearance is being patient with aggravating people, thinking about how God has treated you because nobody has offended you in any comparison to how you have offended God by your attitudes and your sin. And God has been eternally forbearing with our sins, lest we be impatient with another brother or sister. Well, he closes with a call to unity. Verse 4, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. He uses the one the word one seven times in those verses. Think he's making a point? It's unified, maintaining the unity, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You are one in Christ. It applies to all kinds of categories. But given the chapter 2 in the Jew and Gentile, given our culture, I want us to think about a vision for a unity with people who may view and experience the world differently, people with different backgrounds, people with different uh, experiences, uh, maybe from different countries, maybe a different experience in this country. So how do we respond? First of all, that's a vision. That's a vision that's impossible, so we must pray. We must pray. We're going to gather here on Thursday night and pray. We're just going to come together, we talked about gifts of the Spirit, talked about our need for the Spirit, talked about being filled with the Spirit, talk about unity. Uh, and we are going to come together and just pray in here and cry out to God. I don't have a five-step plan. I'm going to continue growing. We're going to continue growing. I'm going to continue addressing this in various ways. But we're not, we're not, we don't, I'm not laying out the five-step plan. 
I don't have that. I, I, I have the Holy Spirit deal with our hearts. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, change us. Holy Spirit, unify us in a polarizing time. So we're going to pray. Number two, I say it every time, call to reach out. Please look to build church relationships and friendships with people that don't look like you, people that don't have your politics, people that don't have your same age but are a different age. This is all based on trust. Being able to have conversations and unify at a time like this is based on trusting relationships, and that takes time. That means people in our homes, around a dinner table, going out to eat. I know some of us are limited during these days. I get that. But doing the best we can to talk and relate to one another. And lastly, it's a call to celebrate. We say, man, I look around the country right now, and I see angry people. I see offended people. I see injured and hurt people. I see yelling voices. I don't see anything to celebrate. But the Lord has given us a sacrament to celebrate. It's called communion. And it is the torn body of Jesus Christ. The torn bread is his torn body that we might be one. And his blood shed that we might be forgiven and be one. See, we're actually called to celebrate this reality. We're actually called to maintain the unity of the Spirit by believing God's vision and by celebrating what he's done, not only in the Word, but also in communion. So we're going to do that. I'm going to invite the band to come, and I'm going to pray for us, and we are going to celebrate communion together. Uh, let's stand together, and I'm going to ask that uh, now will be a time. If you, don't, if you didn't get communion, uh, we have it in individual uh, sort of servings out, out there. I think they're in the back, or uh, I'm looking around. I didn't get direction on this. Oh, they're in the back. So if you go to the back, uh, you can get one if you didn't get it. If you're a Christian, we encourage you to receive communion today. Uh, If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, uh, we'd love to have you join uh, with us. You don't have to be a member of this church. You just need to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, we'd ask that you just wait uh, because this really won't be meaningful to you. It won't really be... uh, it won't be identifying with Christ, which is what this about is about, identifying with him and identifying with his people. So we're going to sing. You can uh, go through the arduous task of opening the lid of your <laughs> serving. And uh, if you spill it, uh, you can go get another one. That's okay. Uh, but let's sing together, and then we will receive together momentarily. I mentioned earlier that walking in unity around any number of issues in the body of Christ is a marathon and not a sprint. I've never run a marathon, but I guess the good thing is to know there is an end. And the end of this marathon is glorious. The end of this marathon is gathered around the throne with all of God's people, all of his blood-bought saints at rest. The race is over. We made it to the destination. And if you're a Christian, you will make it. He will sustain you. And we remind ourselves of that every time we read about the gospel in the Bible. Every time we receive the bread and the cup, we're reminded that his body was broken, that we might be one and that we might be eternally one with him. His blood was shed that our sins might be forgiven and we might be reconciled to him forever and reconciled to his people as well forever. So as we receive this today, it is, a, it is a foretaste of what is to come. It is a celebration of what he's done. It's a remembrance of the past. It's a celebration of what we enjoy today. And it is the sure hope that our sins are forgiven, 
that he welcomes us before his throne eternally. I'm going to pray a prayer that comes from that one blood book that uh, John Perkins wrote. I'm going to read a prayer that he wrote in that book that has to do with what Christ has done for us and has to do with the theme we talked about today, and then we will receive. Lord God, open our eyes to see your truth and to believe your word. From one man you created all mankind. You made us from one blood, and then you saved us by one blood, the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Your word is truth. Help it to penetrate our hearts and our minds. Help it to break through our walls of resistance in those places where we've chosen to believe the enemy's lies. Break us, Lord. Awaken us, Lord. Make us one, Lord. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.